Well, good morning, River City Church. Uh, it's really good to be here with you. Uh, my name is John Lightbody. Like Aaron said, I'm a pastoral candidate here. Um, if you haven't had a chance to, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd just love to say hi after our worship service this morning. Um, I also want to say, if like you're new here or you're visiting, welcome. We are genuinely really glad to have you. Uh, we'd love to help you get connected to our community here, like in whatever way we can. Uh, and that too, we want to welcome you to the uh, preaching series we're in on the book of Titus. Uh, we are three weeks into that, and while I'm calling it a book, it's actually a letter, right? The book of Titus was a letter written by the Apostle Paul um, to his friend and a mentee, Titus. Um, Titus is someone who was a, a church planter and a, a pastor like Paul was, um, and he's someone that Paul really trusted with a lot of difficult ministry assignments. Uh, if you were around last year at all as we were preaching through 1 Corinthians, you know that that was a place that had a lot of problems and a lot of issues that needed to be addressed. And that's somewhere that Paul stationed Titus for a number of years. And now we find that Titus has been moved over to the island of Crete. Um, so Crete is still around. It hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, it's a beautiful Mediterranean island. Uh, and this is a place that has a lot of harbors. And so a couple thousand years ago, this was a really strategic place for trade. A lot of ships were going in and out. Uh, but it was also a really strategic place for sharing the gospel and advancing the kingdom for those same reasons. However, Crete was also really bad news. Right, Crete is a place that's known for its sexual perversion, violence, and deceitfulness in the ancient world. Uh, Polybius, who's a Greek historian, wrote that it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. In fact, another word for being a liar is to be a Cretan, and this is an expression that still gets used some today. To top it all off, the main occupation in Crete was to be a mercenary soldier, right? a soldier for hire. And essentially because they were on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, that often meant that they were actual literal pirates. So this behavior was really reflected in their chief god, Zeus, who himself was really vindictive and selfish. And this is where Titus is working as a missionary and a church planner. And Paul says in the first verse of this letter that the reason he has put Titus here is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, right? Paul has a vision to see the churches in Crete characterized by loving and doing and seeking good. And this is a theme that shows up no less than seven times throughout this short letter. So last week we talked about how Paul's task to Titus in Crete is to appoint elders or pastors, and these are two words for the same role, right? These are men whose teaching and whose lives reflect the character of God. They hold to the truth of Jesus that has been handed down from the apostles, and they also have lives, right, character that reflects that character that God has. And this is what's known as godliness. And they do this by having characteristics like being hospitable and, and loving good, and one of the reasons Paul gives this assignment to Titus is he understands how crucial a role leadership plays in the lives of people that they lead. But there's another reason Paul instructs Titus to do this, and that's because of the urgent need of good leadership in Crete. As we're going to see, the churches in Crete, they've been overrun by false teachers who are influencing the church in all the wrong ways. They are teaching human commands and myths that distract from God's will. They are using empty speech to deceive people. And in doing this, they're disrupting entire families, households in Crete. 
What's more right is that their character, their lives reveal the effect this kind of false teaching has. Paul describes them as greedy and liars and gluttons. And so, in love for the church, Paul tells Titus to rebuke these false teachers. And this is for their own good, but also for the good of the church. And this morning, we're going to see that if we want to be a church that is growing in godliness, we need to reject the influence of false teachers whose lives and whose teachings don't reflect the truth and the goodness of God. If we want to be a church that's growing in godliness, we need to reject the influence of leaders whose lives and whose teachings don't reflect the truth and the goodness of God. And we need to do this because of just how destructive that influence can be not only for us individually, but for our church as a whole. And so this morning, we're going to talk about who are these false teachers in Crete, and why is it important to reject the influence of false teachers in our own lives, and how do we go about doing it? So I'm really excited to share this immensely practical passage with you, so let's pray and and dive into it here. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, and we just pray that And just thinking about who Jesus is and what he has done will help us to just like identify false teaching and call it out for what it is and to root it out of our lives. So we just need you for these things, God, and we trust you. Amen. All right, so this morning we're in Titus chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 10. It reads this way. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Right. Other translations, I call that the circumcision party, which, by the way, sounds like the worst party you would ever want to go to. <laughs> right. So the circumcision group. Paul says they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So if we're going to understand this passage and this hard language Paul is using, I think we have to start by backing up to the previous four or five verses where Paul's discussing the kind of leaders that Titus is supposed to appoint. Right? Paul tells Titus to appoint leaders whose lives and whose teaching reflect the goodness and the truth of God. And he tells Titus to appoint these elders or pastors in every town. And we see first in verse 9, they need to teach the truth. Right, they're to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they maybe encourage others in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. But what's more, right, their, their character, their lives, how they live, they need to reflect the word that they are teaching. Right? They need to live out the message they preach so that their words and their lives send the same message about the person and the work of Jesus. Verse 7, he must be blameless, not overbearing or quick-tempered or given to drunkenness, not violent or pursuing dishonest gain. But verse 8, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
And appointing these leaders is really important because of what a huge impact leadership has on those they care for, because people often begin to look like those who lead them. But what we see here this morning in our passage is that instead of the kinds of leaders Paul wants Titus to appoint, there is a whole different group of leaders in the church, whether they're in official or unofficial roles. Ultimately, these are people whose lives and whose teaching does not reflect the truth and the goodness of God. In fact, it really accomplishes the very opposite. So who are these false teachers Paul is referring to here, and and what were they like? So to begin with, these false teachers, they're not holding to the truth of God, but rather to a man-made teaching. Verse 14 mentions their Jewish myths and the merely human commands that they're teaching. And the truth is, we don't have all the details about what this false teaching looked like. But as a side note, like sometimes if you're reading your Bible and the Bible seems just kind of vague about a certain point, I just want you to be encouraged. Like God often leaves out these details because it's a help to us as we try to understand this passage in our own context and our own lives. So while we don't have all the details, we do have a couple of clues in the text. And we hear again that these, these false teachers are members of what he calls the circumcision group. And when he says especially, really that, that word is uh, specifically or in particular, meaning all the false teachers he's addressing belong to this particular group. And because he also mentions Jewish myths, we can be confident that the people he's talking about are, are often known as Judaizers. This is a group of false teachers that are spoken of throughout the New Testament, Right? And their teaching is essentially that they demand adherence to Jewish customary laws like dietary restrictions and strict Sabbath adherence and circumcision in particular in order to be saved. What they're really saying is like, okay, faith in Jesus, that's good, but you need this other stuff too if you really want to be in God's family and adopted by him. You see, essentially they're teaching Jesus plus whatever equals righteousness. When the truth of the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals our righteousness. You see, they take the the simple gospel, which is to have faith in Jesus and what he has done and to repent of sin, and and they add up all these made-up, man-made checklists, right? This is a false teaching called legalism. And legalism takes on a lot of different forms, but at the end of the day, legalism insists on following man-made rules to earn a relationship with God, Legalism is about following man-made rules to earn a relationship with God. And when we look at these false teachers, we can see that this false teaching, it has resulted in sinful character. Here it's helpful to compare the character Paul describes of the godly elders in verses 5 through 9 with these uh, rebellious, sinful teachers in verses 10 through 16. See, while the elders are called not to be given to drunkenness in verse 7, in verse 12 we see that the false teachers are gluttons. And while elders are called not to pursue dishonest gain in verse 8, the false teachers do exactly that in verse 11. Rather than being blameless as the elders are supposed to be in verse 7, these guys are disobedient and insubordinate. That means like they hate good authority and they reject it, verse 16. Rather than being holy and a lover of good, as in verse 8, they are evil brutes or evil beasts, verse 12. And ultimately, while they profess to know God, they deny him by their works. What we see here is like the lives and teaching of these false teachers. It is a photo negative, right? An exact opposite of the kind of godly leadership that Paul is trying to charge Titus to build up in these churches in Crete. And that's because what we do flows out of what we believe. And these guys do not believe the gospel. The truth is, 
false teaching and immoral character, these things always go together. They always go together. So why do we need to reject the influence of false teachers? The first big reason is because legalism, false teaching, right, it produces ungodly character. Trying to follow extra rules, it might not seem only harmless. It might actually seem helpful at first glance, right? If, if God has given us this moral law that we're supposed to follow as Christians, aren't we just being extra careful by adding more rules? And won't this keep us doing, uh, from doing what he doesn't want? Right? We might think about like faith in Jesus, our relationship with him as like our main parachute, so to speak. But maybe like having really strict adherence to a lot of rules is sort of a backup shoot. It's like extra insurance against danger. But really, legalism is much more like jumping out of an airplane with an anvil tied to your back. How is this so? I would say legalism produces ungodly character, and that is for two reasons I want to suggest. First is that legalism limits godliness, and the second is that legalism cannot change your heart. So how does legalism limit godliness? How does following really strict rules about maybe reading your Bible every day or fasting regularly or sharing your faith with your friends, how do these things limit godliness? Well, as Tim Chester notes in like his excellent commentary on this book, it's because these things reduce godliness to checking some boxes. See, essentially the idea with legalism is if I do X, Y, Z, if I fulfill this checklist, then God and I are good and I can go live life however I want. Right? Back then, it might have looked like, hey, if, if I keep the Sabbath and I'm circumcised, then I'm godly, I'm in. And now I can just have control over my own life. Today, it might look like other things. We may convince ourselves we're godly because we listen to worship music even though we shout at our kids or demean them when they're annoying to us. We could convince ourselves we're godly because we keep the Sabbath really strictly even though we cheat on our timesheets at work. And we can convince ourselves we're godly because... We don't drink alcohol, even though we're completely selfish with our time and our money. You see, legalism, what it does is it limits godliness from a full life, full-time commitment to a part-time project. Something Jesus addressed with the Pharisees in Mark 7, verse 9, is he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Jesus saw right through this with the religious leaders. But what's more important is that legalism, it absolutely cannot transform your heart. And when the Bible uses the word heart, what it's talking about is like the center of your decision-making or your motivations, the reason why you do the things that you do. See, when you exercise legalism, you're not relating to God as a loving father that you can trust. No, instead, you're relating to him as a cranky boss that you need to get off your back. And this is where the gospel is completely different. You see, if you believe the gospel, you believe that God is like morally perfect. That means he's holy. He's utterly pure. And yet you are a sinner and you have made yourself an enemy of his through what you have done and said and believed. And yet in totally unearned love toward you, God has sent his son Jesus to suffer in your place for your sin out of deep love for you. And believing this at the deepest level, right, it produces an entirely different kind of person, one that loves God and has been transformed by his grace. In Titus 2, verse 11 and 14, Paul writes, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, waiting for our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. 
So we see in that, that short passage that Paul is saying, you want to be trained to avoid sin and to flee to what is good? You believe in Jesus. And that motivates you at a heart level. And when you believe the gospel, you see that God is generous and loving and he's kind to those who don't deserve it. You see this new man, they relate to God primarily out of love and not out of fear. And this means that when we believe the gospel, our efforts at godliness, they're not cornered areas of our lives we have control over, but rather godliness overflows over all of our life as we reflect on the person and work of Jesus increasingly over the weeks, months, and years. But when you're trusting your own obedience to save you, which is what legalism is teaching, it actually has the opposite effect of this. It actually hardens your heart. Because you end up seeing God more like the Cretan god, Zeus. You see, Zeus was really powerful. And maybe if you've seen like the Disney movie Hercules, or you, you, know, you take a history class or something, you're familiar with this guy. Right? He had lightning bolts. Uh, the, the people who worshipped him back in the day, they believed that he controlled the weather, and lightning in particular. So he was a powerful little G God. But he was also vindictive and deceitful and selfish. He was actually notorious for tricking women into sleeping with him. And in one myth in particular, he actually kills one of his grandsons out of spite and jealousy. You see, Zeus is someone who you might respect his power, and you might fear him, but you cannot love him. You might offer him sacrifices to appease him, but he cannot possess your heart. When we think about our relationship with God in terms of following rules to get him off our backs... We're treating him like this false god, Zeus, and not like the true living God that he is. So not only do these false teachers produce ungodly character by limiting godliness and being unable to change their heart, but, but second, this teaching and these teachers, they're disrupting others through their bad influence. And this is not only due to the lies they're teaching, but also due to the character they exhibit. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us can relate to being under authority figures who do not have godly character. I know back when my family and I lived in a different city, uh, we spent years at a church that was led by somebody like this. You see, they were gifted and dynamic. This dude was an excellent public speaker. He was amazing at getting ca uh, casting vision and, and getting people excited about it. I remember sharing with my wife at one point, and probably a couple points, I would follow that guy anywhere. And I absolutely meant it. But the problem was his moral character showed that he was not a godly leader, like Paul discusses in the beginning of this letter. Right? He bullied and belittled people who disagreed with him, even on trivial things. <clears throat> he made it clear that our church was the only one doing things the right way. And unlike the godly elders of verses 5 through 9, he was eager to fight because being right mattered more to him than people's good. And in the end, he was consumed with his own glory and not God's. Eventually, his own church had to fire him, and a year later, closed its doors. And I've prayed, even while like prepping this sermon, that God would give me a heart that wants this man's good, that he would find deep joy and peace and forgiveness in Jesus. But I cannot tell you the amount of collateral damage that has been left in his wake. 
how the reputation of Jesus and his gospel has been marred in my life and the lives of others, the marriages I know that have ended, the untold hours of counseling and prayer and healing that have been undertaken to restore the damage done to people, and the number of phone calls I've taken personally from dear friends of mine trying to unpack this damage. Tragically, this is not an isolated incident. And this weighs really heavy on me because as someone who's like in the process of being trained to become a pastor, I have seen firsthand what happens when this role is used for anything other than pointing to the goodness and the fullness of Jesus. So finally, we need to avoid false teachers and reject their influence because they destroy Christian witness. Right? Because the truth is, preaching the gospel, that only makes sense to people when they see that your life is different because of your faith in Christ. And as Paul encourages throughout the book to Titus, right, Christians should be characterized by good works. But this is not so that God's going to be impressed by us and save us based on the things we have done. No, this is so that we reflect the goodness and graciousness of God shown to us out of loving response to Jesus's kindness. Right? And when these good works are done from a heart full of faith, they adorn the gospel with credibility. And when we share it verbally, we have lives that back that up. But what you see in the passage is that the influence of these false teachers, it ruins their ability to do this. Verse 16 says, They claim to know God, but by their actions deny him, and they are unfit for doing anything good. How could that be so? Right? These guys sound like they know their Bible really well. They must be reading and, and praying. They must be, you know, teaching people, obviously. But the truth is, even though like, their lives are filled with religious activity, their hearts are cold and distant from God because they are counting on their own works to save them and they're not counting on Jesus' work. They don't actually know God. This results in people who work really hard to try to earn God's favor, but their motivations for doing those good works are completely messed up. And the reason this destroys Christian witness is that people can see right through bad motivations. They are not stupid. As Jesus said, a bad tree can only produce bad fruit. Lewis expounds on this in his sermon, Beyond Personality, where he says that history isn't just the story of bad people doing bad things. In fact, it's quite as much a story of people trying to do good things, but somehow it always goes wrong. Take the common expression, cold is charity. How did we come to say that? From experience. We have learned how unsympathetic and patronizing and conceited charitable people can often be. It's the old story, who you are comes out in what you do. A crab apple tree cannot produce good apples. And as long as the old self is in there, its taint will be over all that we do. We try to be religious and become Pharisees. We try to be kind to become patronizing. And unselfishness becomes a way to show off. Paul unpacks this same idea in verse 15. To the pure, that is to those who are born again and have put their faith in Christ for their salvation, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. And they're unable to do what is good. See, when unjust leaders with immoral character are leading the church, the gospel doesn't gain credibility, it actually loses it. And so the influence of false teachers, right, it results in ungodly character. 
the disruption of entire households, and the destruction of Christian witness. So in light of all the damage the influence of false teachers can have, how do we go about rejecting their influence? I think the first thing we should talk about is like the context of this passage as we consider this question. You got to remember that this is Paul writing a letter to another pastor, church planner, right? Titus, who is trusted with some really sticky ministry situations. And Paul gives some really specific instructions to Titus for what he's supposed to do in this situation. He says that these false teachers must be silenced, verse 11, and that to rebuke them sharply, verse 13. But don't miss that he also says to do this for their good, right? That they may be sound in the faith. Paul wants to see these false teachers come to faith in Jesus and be a part of the church. But the thing is, you're not Titus, and that's not the situation you find yourself in. You see, primarily the responsibility of addressing false teachers within the church falls to your pastors, right? Your elders, Like Paul charges in verse 9, a pastor must be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So what does this look like for us? Well, for all of us, pastors and lay people or weirdos like me who are kind of both, our primary responsibility is to find out where we're listening to false teachers and false teaching and to root that influence out of our lives. Right? It's not to fight heretics online and argue with them. It's not to start confronting everyone you disagree with on trivial matters. No, it's to find out where you're listening to false teaching and false teachers and to root that influence out of your life. I think if we're going to do this successfully, the first thing we need to just confess and realize is how susceptible we all are to false teaching. And it may be easy to think that because we're familiar with the gospel, we believe it. Maybe we're plugged into a really good church community. Maybe you read your Bible and other good books. That's awesome, right? But you might think because of those disciplines you're in that like you're immune from false teaching, that it could never happen to you. But the truth is every one of us is susceptible to lies because they appeal to our pride and our idols. And that is something everyone in here struggles with. I've fallen prey to this myself, right? Uh, Maybe five, six weeks ago or so, I was watching YouTube shorts because I spend my time super wisely, right? And I came across this sermon clip. And in it, there's this, this pastor, this preacher, and he's, he's preaching about this passage where Jesus um, is praying through the whole night, right? Because the next day, he's got to appoint his 12 disciples. And after explaining this story, the pastor has people raise their hands. He asks them, who among you has pray through the whole night because of a big decision you have to make. And towards the front, there's a handful of people who are not raising their hands. And uh, he points at one of them and he says, here we find somebody who thinks they're stronger than Jesus. Right? I hope when you hear that story, you're like, wow, that's ridiculous. That is completely missing the point of the entire passage. And that's an insane thing to tell people because it's never a command God even gives us. But because I'm susceptible to this kind of thing, I did not swipe up and go do something else. I started planning in my head how I'm going to pull this off. Where am I going to go in our house to pray through an entire night? How am I going to avoid waking up my wife and my kids? What am I going to pray about for like eight hours? Look, praying through the night, you know, staying up late to pray or getting up early to pray, that can be a great thing. When you like see a relationship with God as as the most important thing in your life, you just want to like take some time to connect with him because you love him. Or there's something really bothering you. You just want to talk to him about it. Hey, that's amazing. That's a great thing to do. But the truth is, I was not motivated by that kind of thinking. 
I was motivated by trying to justify myself by my actions and to prove what a good little boy I am. See, if we're going to be vigilant against the influence of false teachers, we have to recognize that we are all susceptible to this. And maybe you're not tempted towards that kind of teaching. Maybe you'd be tempted to more towards some kind of prosperity preaching or kind of universalism sort of teaching. Or maybe you're tempted to believe the lie that if you can be disciplined and masculine enough, if you could just work harder on yourself, you would fulfill your own destiny and find the joy and satisfaction you've been looking for. Or maybe you're tempted to believe if you could nail down the perfect morning routine, right? And if you could just like exercise and then read your Bible and then like eat a bunch of vegetables or something and stretch for 20 minutes, that then you would have peace and then you would have joy. Guys, the truth is like false teaching, it's a really sneaky thing. It adorns itself in crosses and quotes Bible verses sometimes. Sometimes it prevents itself as just a philosophy or a practical tool for living your life. And while we certainly don't want to be characterized as a people who are overly critical and putting everything through a fine-tooth comb and criticizing all kinds of different teachers for disagreeing with us on something trivial, we absolutely do want to be a people that pays careful attention to the things that we listen to and that we watch. Because teaching works a lot like eating. You might not remember the thing you had for breakfast last Tuesday, but all the meals that you've had, right, they make up who you are. And similar to the kinds of teaching that you listen to, you might not know all the ways that it's influencing you, but it absolutely does. I think once you realize that you're susceptible to false teaching, the next step is to start to think carefully about your influences. This includes like books you read, the news you watch, YouTube, social media, sermons, etc. And I want to be really careful. I don't want to start preaching a sermon on legalism and give you a rules of the books you can't read. That is absolutely not the point. But out of love and devotion to Jesus, as we follow him, we want to be discerning about the things that we're consuming. And one way to discern the media that you listen to is to start to think about the kind of fruit it produces in your life. For example, when you come away from this certain kind of teaching, do you find yourself angry at somebody or something? Do you walk away convinced of your own rightness and everyone else's foolishness? Do the teachers and influencers you listen to constantly agree with you on everything? Are you ever challenged or told something you don't want to hear? Are you moved toward self-affirmation or self-fulfillment or self-sacrifice? Does it lead you to rely on yourself and your own effort instead of increasingly relying on the effort that Jesus has put forward for you? You see, effective godly leaders, they are always pointing you back to the person and the work of Jesus. And when your spiritual diet is the gospel, you're going to answer these questions very differently than if it's not. Third, I think we need to, in order to effectively reject the influence of false teaching and false teachers, is we need to confess our sin. You see, the hard truth is, Every one of us in here, myself included, has been guilty of not only listening to false teaching, and ha- but handing it out. See, whenever we give ear to bad leaders that teach lies about who God is, or whenever we try to steer people this way ourselves, we are impeding God's kingdom instead of building it. And instead of directing people to the eternal hope found in Jesus, we try to either exert power over them or comfort them through lies. And one really subtle way this can happen is when we have 
the good intention of helping a friend through a difficult problem, right? Maybe this is like an issue in their marriage or like their finances. And it's so tempting to offer either pithy sayings or practical advice. And look, I'm pro-good advice, and I'm pro-budgets and practical tools. And it is really crucial to take serious time to listen to our friends when they're opening up about something, and not just throw a tract in their hand the moment they open their mouth about a problem. But, but, at the end of the day, when we offer our friends anything than the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus, we are not pointing them to the only thing that can actually help them. Finally, if we're going to reject the influence of false teaching and false teachers, by far the most important thing we need to do is believe the gospel. And this is an active and ongoing thing. You see, believing the gospel, it ultimately means putting our trust in the best leader there is. You see, rather than teaching lies, Jesus always, always told the truth. He was radically committed to it, even when it made him unpopular and even when it got him killed. And instead of being disobedient to the Father, like these false teachers in the letter are, he was always perfectly obedient to the Father, even unto death. And rather than trying to lead people for selfish gain, Jesus displayed the ultimate act of generosity by dying on the cross in your place for your sin. And he did this not after you had turned to him and cleaned yourself up, but in the midst of you believing lies about who he is and what he has done. And the good news is this morning, just through faith in Jesus, his perfect commitment to the truth, his perfect obedience, and his sacrificial generosity are all credited towards your account. Through faith in him, God sees you like him, his good and perfect son with whom he is well pleased. This is the truth we proclaim and remember every week as we take communion. See, as a church, um, during the time of response, as we're singing, if you have come to faith in Jesus, if you come to see that he is your justification and that it is nothing that you do that earns your relationship with God, but it is all what he has done for you, then whenever you're ready during our time of singing and response and worship, go back and take communion. So there's two tables set up on uh, both sides of the room. Just dip the bread and the juice and take that as a remembrance of all Jesus has done for you. But if that's not you this morning, if you find that you're still counting on yourself and your own righteousness to appease God and to satisfy him, if you've not come to totally trust Jesus with your life, then I just really want to say how glad we genuinely are to have you here in our church and in our community. And your process and questions and doubts and fears are welcome. But please don't take communion. Because God is not after like a religious ritual doesn't impress him, doesn't change your status with him, right? He's after you. He wants you. Maybe this morning, for the first time, you are realizing not only how susceptible you are to false teachers, but that you regularly spend time consuming this sort of content. It could look like 30-second internet videos, like what I was watching, or maybe books you're reading, or, you know, sermons, movies, shows that you're into, whatever it might be. The invitation this morning is to reject the influence of this material. And as you continue to grow in your knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, you'll be better equipped to identify the liars you're listening to and to root that influence out of your life. Again, I'm not preaching legalistically, and I'm not saying all your movies have to be Christian. It's not something like that. I'm just saying where people are trying to give you advice on how to live your life and live your faith, pay attention. 
pay attention. Are they pointing you to Jesus or something else? Maybe this morning God is graciously showing you that you are in ways acting like a false teacher. Maybe instead of offering Jesus, you offer anything but him. And the invitation to you this morning is to repent and to believe the gospel and to commit to the truth that God teaches. You see, God has a lot of hard things to say in the gospel. He says that we're sinners, that we've done what is evil, that our nature is corrupted, that his wrath is real, and that repenting means giving all of your life over to him. That's hard stuff to hear. I often don't want to hear it myself. That's true. But the truth is we can trust in the truth of God because we can see his goodness in him dying for his enemies. Finally, I just want to note something about the importance of gospel community. See, belonging to a church, a community, a small group of people that are committed to teaching the person and the work of Jesus and living it out, it is strong preventative medicine and a very effective treatment against false teaching. You see, when I listened to that sermon clip about praying through the night and I was trying to plot how I was going to pull that off and I was feeling guilty that I hadn't already, what finally walked me back off the edge of that cliff was over the next two and three weeks, every Wednesday night at small group, and every, morning, every Sunday morning as we gathered to worship, I kept hearing about the person and the work of Jesus and how my standing before God is all on him and what he has done, and it is not on me and what I have done. I was reminded of the gospel again and again. And while I couldn't even point to a specific moment where, ah, that finally clicked, that, that toxic false lesson I had heard, it was leached out of my life. Because the truth is I'm not saved by radical religious devotion and neither are you. You are saved by the obedience, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. And while River City Church is certainly far from perfect, I am so grateful for my brothers and sisters here who have just committed to following Jesus and proclaiming him at our small groups and our Sunday gatherings and in every corner of our lives. It's been such a life-giving thing for me. Verse 15 again, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. You see, if we're trusting in Jesus, excuse me, if we're trusting in our own obedience and not trusting in Jesus for our relationship with God, even our religious devotion is corrupted by self-righteousness and nothing is pure to us. But if we trust in Jesus and he changes our heart, we are empowered to say no to sin and to be devoted to him because we have our ultimate fulfillment in him. But we are also free to say yes to his good and generous gifts because we are not saved by our own actions or asceticism. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for dying in the place of sinners and rising again. We do not deserve your grace and generosity, but you have freely and joyfully given it to us. I pray that like your gentleness and your love for us would just be made palpable and clear in this room this morning because our hearts just desperately need you. We need your forgiveness. We need your good leadership. So I pray that you would just build trust in the hearts of those who have trusted you and create trust in the hearts of those who have not yet, God. We just trust you for all these things in your name, for your glory. Amen.